Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not quench. Uh, He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, young man, and well done, all of the, all of the singers. That was great. Sign that kid up. Like I said before, we have entered into a new season, which means a new sermon series. This one is entitled, Where There Is Darkness, Light. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, good. That means you've been paying some attention uh, because there was a whole season, Advent, that we prayed the prayer of St. Francis. I want to pray that prayer again for us today. And as a matter of fact, I want to give us some context. It is not going to be on the screens in front of you. Um, It is actually going to be on the screen in front of me. So I'm just going to pray it and and want you to kind of just pray it. Just sort of think it through and let me pray the words for you. That said, I hope right now, I hope right now that you'll start to get into kind of the, the gist of the season of Epiphany. The gist of the season of Epiphany, by the way, kicked off last Monday by Epiphany Day, the day that we retell the story of the Magi, the Magi discovering. You can kind of see it all here in in this picture. There's this amazing star, this amazing demonstration the star is of the reach of God, amazing reach. God's reach extends so far that it extends into other faith systems that wouldn't have any other reason to acknowledge this Jesus character. That's how big, that's how expansive this God is. But when they get all the way to the place that the star told them to go, what did they find? They found a child. Now, in most of our nativity scenes, we we picture this child that they found to still be an infant. There is some indication. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a couple years later. Either way, it's still a child which gives us what we're gonna return to several times today, this amazing juxtaposition when you put one thing alongside another and you're struck by the contrast. Here in this story of the Magi, you have the incredible, the expansive reach of God. That is a big God, everybody. Right alongside a God demonstrated and manifested as a child. Huge and small, expansive and intimate. And I would submit to you that God, (laughs) 
if you made God choose, what's the one takeaway you want to have about this God character? I would submit to you that what God wants you to take away from this giant juxtaposition, big next to small, is the small, the intimate, the kind, the gentle. So God does this in order to tell the story, to tell this story of love and grace. And so during the season of Epiphany that is kicked off by this story, we too are asked if we are in fact telling the same story of love and hope and grace. As I read for you, as I read for you this prayer that starts, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, that includes this line, where there is darkness, light, I would like for you to pray as if you were or as if you are or as if you can be an evangelist. In other words, might God bring somebody to mind? Somebody in your orbit, somebody within arm's reach. Might God bring someone to mind? Might be a family neighbor, family member, might be a neighbor, might be a coworker, maybe your most bitter enemy, I don't know. My hope is that God will bring somebody to mind, somebody for whom you can put skin and flesh on this prayer. And so I'm actually going to pray a little sort of introductory prayer, because you know, that's what preachers do, that's what we do. And then I'm gonna start reading the prayer of St. Francis, but the first part will have to do with making some time and space for God to bring someone to mind who needs to be, and I know this word is loaded and not altogether great in great ways for a lot of us, someone who needs to be evangelized, someone for whom you might be the evangelist, but someone who desperately needs you to be faithful, to be light where there is darkness. So Heavenly Father, in these moments bring to mind a name, maybe a face, somebody that we live near, work near, somebody who, somebody who needs you, somebody who needs this sense of grace. And now, as I read for you and pray for myself this prayer of St. Francis, own it for yourself. And with that person in mind, let's continue to pray it in the hopes that God might actually be able to work in and through me to get to her, to get to him. Lord, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console him or her, to be understood as to understand him or her, 
to be loved as to love him or her. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Now I hope somehow in the course of the sermon, I hope somehow in the course of your day, (laughs) I, I actually hope in the course of this next week and all of the weeks of Epiphany that that name or that face that I believe that God perhaps brought to mind will stay somewhere in your view, will stay somewhere close to your consciousness. That is the prayer, as you know, of St. Francis of Assisi. Now, St. Francis of Assisi, I did some uh, studying up about this character, and this person is a character, okay? Uh, And let me tell you a little bit that I did not know about St. Francis of Assisi. Not a clergy person. Not until the very end of his life was a lay person, was a lay person, not ordained in any way until he was ordained as a deacon at the end of his life, at the end of his career. He was born to a wealthy Italian business person, businessman, who had married a woman of French descent, a noble woman. He had everything that he wanted. He was known as a good-looking playboy kind of person, He uh, could buy anything he wanted. He could travel anywhere he wanted, and in fact did so, and in fact joined the military to travel, to get involved, to, to see what there was to see. Actually got himself involved in a conflict and was captured and was held as a prisoner of war for an entire year. And you would think that that would be where God would start to change his mind and heart, but history seems to record that it wasn't quite It wasn't that that quite finally changed his heart. So he comes back, gets out of this prison of war situation, comes back, and resumes his playboy lifestyle. But then one day, one day, while he was actually participating in his dad's business, a beggar comes by, pleading for help. And because he was busy doing business, Francis just sort of shuffled him along. But watching him walk away, something snapped. Like something broke. He chased after the man and said, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Here's everything that I have. And that's where it kind of started. The change started when he said, here's everything that I have on me. Because then after that, he went and took everything he could find. Most of it was his dad's. And started giving it away just as quickly as he could. His dad got so angry, he had him arrested, arrested. In trying to make his case, he said, no, dad, this is what I'm supposed to do. And by the way, this is what you're supposed to do with with your staff. His dad was not having any of it, got very angry. Eventually, there was such an impasse that Francis actually renounced any right he would have to his inheritance and walked away, walked away from his family. And he went and he lived a very peculiar life. That's what we would say if we were to walk up upon someone living like this. He he lived a very peculiar life, very attentive to the poor, remained for the rest of his life, remained very attentive to the poor, remained also attentive to nature and creation 
and animals. <laughs> we'll get back to that in a second. People watched him live this life and were attracted to this way of life. And before too long, there were 11 others, 11 others who had joined Francis in this particular way of life. He actually took these people, went to the church and said, hey, will you recognize us as a particular way of life? And the Franciscan order was born. Monks in a monastery kind of thing. Not too long after that, there were women who said, us too, we want to live this particular way of life that is attentive, not just to the plight of the poor, but all of creation, and we want to spread this good news and this good word with everything that we do. We want to give our whole selves to it. And so a, a, the, the woman's version of the same kind of thing was also born. And then later, that still exists, it's known as the poor Clares to this day. Then later, there was a third group this, this third group was also won over. Their minds and their hearts, their imaginations were won over by Francis. But for whatever reason, they could not leave their homes. They could not leave their families. They could not leave their lines of work. But here's what was said to them. Okay, then be as orderly as you can where you are. And they actually were called the secular Franciscan order to this day, called the secular Franciscan order. Now, when you and I hear this word secular, we, we sometimes think of it as godless, right? We always sort of seem to pit the sacred against the secular. Don't, don't do that here. The secular order meant this. They weren't going to go live in a convent. They weren't gonna go live in a monastery, but they were gonna live out these same principles, attentiveness to the poor, attentiveness to all of creation, attentiveness to the other for the purpose of sharing the gospel, they were going to live out all of those principles while remaining in their homes and remaining in their workplaces, remaining in their cities. The secular order was not at all godless. In fact, hear me say, maybe we should be the Oklahoma City version of the secular Franciscan order. There is, a, there is something about St. Francis that reminds me of the person or the people described in today's passage of Scripture. This is the first of several servant songs, is what it's called in the book of Isaiah, and we will deal with at least one more of these next week, servant songs. Who is this servant talked about in the book of Isaiah that we heard read so well today? Who, what, who, who is this servant? What's... There are questions of identity here, and it shapes the way we hear the words. Like, is the servant of long ago a king? Was it a king? This, was this Isaiah aching out loud that there would someday be a king who would fulfill all of these good and right and righteous purposes and postures? Maybe. Is it possible that this is sort of the, the gathered up people of God? Is God talking about the people of God in a singular kind of voice to say, I want you to be the body that I've always wanted to have. I, I think, and, and most scholars think now that that's what's being talked about here. I've been saying this to you for a long time. God has always wanted to have a body. God has always wanted to be tangible, touchable. 
And so that means at certain points in our history, the people of God, here known as Israel, they were supposed to be, and sometimes very well were, tangible, touchable presence of God in the world. Please remember, please remember that the law, in particular, Ten Commandments, were not individual measures of piety. <laughs> it's, how a, it's how an entire culture and society was to be organized so that that entire culture and society could be the tangible expression of God. Within this tangible expression of God, we don't kill. We don't steal from one another. We don't commit adultery. We don't have any other gods before us. In fact, there are no graven images, nothing to touch, because we are the tangible, touchable presence of God in the world. That's why there are no idols. The people of God, at times, were the tangible expression of God's heart and God's mission until they weren't. And they weren't, and they weren't. But God's still seeking to have a body. There came a point at which, there came a point at which the people of God became the person of God in Christ. And in fact, some people read these servant songs and they say, oh, that's, that's talking about Jesus. That is, that is Old Testament verbiage, yes, but it is obviously talking about Jesus. And, and I would say in response to that, well, not at first, not at first. It had meaning in its own original context. Now, we do understand Jesus through these lenses, and perhaps more importantly, Jesus understood himself through these lenses. I mean, take a look. Here is my servant. This should sound familiar to us. Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. There are a lot of people, and I'd be one of these people who would say, yeah, this reminds me of the baptism story, especially the one in the book of Matthew. By the way, this Sunday is Baptism of the Lord Sunday, and that is one of the passages made available to me. And I believe, I'm one of those people who believes that Matthew wrote that story in ways to make you think of this in other words, Jesus has become that tangible expression, the body that God has always wanted, who is going to do certain things in certain ways. Now watch how this God will do certain things in certain ways. He, the servant, will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I mentioned this to you earlier. It's here too, this giant juxtaposition. This giant comparison and contrast. These two expressions, let's say. You have God now saying in verse five, if you have your Bibles with you, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. Think, just envision how big Isaiah wants us to understand our God to be. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, says God. Look how big. And yet, see how close Here's what I want you to do, my covenant people. Here's what I want you to do. I have given you as a covenant to all people a light 
to all nations. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Remember, where there is darkness, light. Okay, let, let this be the first time of perhaps several times I will say this to you. Just because you have ugly memories of the ugly ways in which words like outreach and evangelism have been embodied, that does not take you off the hook to be evangelists. Do you know, <laughs> I think I believe what I'm about to say. You ready for this? All right. You like when your pastor says that? <laughs> I genuinely believe that to be Christian means that we're constantly on the look of where we might be able to bring light into dark places. I genuinely believe no matter how you or I have seen words like outreach and evangelism embodied poorly, I genuinely believe that you and I are still supposed to be, by virtue of being Christian, supposed to be evangelists, outreachers. Now, I had, had this discussion, and we'll continue to have this discussion with my class this morning. Yes, we have seen evangelistic efforts go awry, and and so far awry that they end up embodying something other than what we see when we read about the servant or when we read about Jesus. History is full of stories that depict religious people doing terrible things in God's name. <laughs> we just don't have to look hard for it. And, and, and even today, though I see less, fewer uh, people barking at cars as they drive past. I don't see that nearly as much anymore. I, I would count myself as one of those people's, people who would say, I don't think that works. But folks, that's not the sum total of evangelism or outreach. If that is all you think about, then it stands to reason that you would say, I don't want to be an evangelist. That's what they do. At the end of a spear, they try to, try to bully somebody into a decision. And maybe that's, well, that's way too archaic. At the end of a very scary movie on Thursday night at camp, they try to bully somebody into a decision. And maybe you say, and I agree with you, by the way, I will not be a party to someone being intimidated into a decision that they may or may not mean. I'm with you. You still got to be an evangelist. You just have to do it better than that. But you have to be an event, I, and I'm talking to the oldest among us and the youngest among us. Because what we can say about some of these people, even some of those who are involved in some of these ugly expressions of outreach and evangelism, here's what we can say. Somebody somewhere cares what's gonna happen to somebody else. So I don't, I don't wanna bless the methods I do want to say, perhaps we should have some of that care for how the other ends up. Well, let me pose that as a question. Do you care how that other that God brought to mind, do you care how that other ends up? 
John, are you talking about heaven or hell? You bet. And everything that happens prior to that. Do you care that there is sadness or darkness or conflict or terror? Do you care? My friends, if God brought somebody to your mind and heart, chances are you do care. If you don't, the problem lies within you. I wasn't aiming at the East Sider, so I'll say it over here too. <laughs> Listen, really, if I don't care, if I don't care about my neighbor enough to worry about her or him, I'm the one with the problem. Okay, 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 okay. But I don't want to be a party to this whole arm twisting until you make the right decision. I don't want you to do that. Okay, I don't want to be a part of a mass-produced kind of situation. And look, that some, there is, it is undeniable that some good things have happened in what I would call mass-produced situations when football stadiums are filled with people who are asked this very simple question, do you know what would happen to you if you died tonight? Listen, that is still not my thing. And I know I'm not sure that that really works, but we cannot deny that it has worked for many. Amen? But maybe you're saying, yeah, but I, I, don't think, I don't feel like I'm a Billy Graham type. I don't think I'm going to ever fill a stadium with lost people. How would they ever know how to get there, right? So maybe that's not you, and by the way, it's not me either. But you are on the hook to be an evangelist. Let me, let me say it even more pointedly. There are people not here because you have not yet been an evangelist. Is this about church growth, John? I, no. If you'd have heard me this week, I said to the staff, you know what we're not going to do anymore? <laughs> Count. It's not about that. It is about being the kinds of people who are just Christ-like enough to care what happens to my neighbor to care what happens to the person within arm's reach, to care what happens to the person I perhaps have already put in the other category, my enemy, my opposite, my irritant. If you have an irritant, would you please raise your hand? Ooh, some of you are not being honest. <laughs> the Christians are the people who care about those people and whose care takes a particular form. So I'm saying to you, I don't want you to try to intimidate somebody into a decision. I don't, I don't want that. I, I don't think any of us should feel the pressure to mass produce a situation in which people are then motivated to make a decision. Okay, but if that's not evangelism, if that's not outreach, then what is it supposed to look like? What can it look like? The other passage of scripture I was handed today, Acts 10, this amazing power of God to overcome death, but what's the takeaway at the end of this same passage that Peter is, is working us through in Acts chapter 10? The forgiveness of sins. It's Psalm 29, it's incredible. God has the power and the capacity 
to make storms and break storms and then to seat God's throne on top of the storm. It is an amazing thing. Psalm 29 reads a little bit like a pageant, a contest between gods and our God wins it with storms. It's incredible. And at the end, what's the takeaway? Peace. Giant, expansive God who seems to want the takeaway to be something small and near and intimate and close. Forgiveness. Peace. What about this story, the Matthew 3 story? In Mark, this giant God tears apart the heavens. In Matthew, you have a, a voice from the heavens. Uh, a voice from the heavens is frightening, right? Anybody? I mean, if that were to happen, what's the takeaway? It's a dove. And then it's a person. It's a person, a vulnerable, a whole lot like us kind of person. The juxtaposition between God as giant and then God as near and close, there's something there for us as we start to sort through the questions as to what it might look like to be an evangelist. What I'm saying to you is I want to relieve you of any uh, obligation or responsibility you might feel to defeat the person that God brought to mind today. What God does not want you to do is break that person's arm behind their back. What God does not want you to do, if all of these passages of Scripture have anything to tell us, will indicate anything about how it is we are to relate to our neighbor, our other here in the season of Epiphany, all of these passages seem to indicate, seem to indicate that it's not gonna do any good to intimidate that other that God brought to mind into the kingdom. In fact, what God seems to want from you, from us, what God seems to embody so well, is that relationship and love actually work. You are to be an evangelist. You are to be outreaching. You are to be an outreacher. And the best thing you have to use, the best tool in your toolkit, is your genuine, and I said genuine, love and affection for the person that God brought to mind. Did you hand me that book right there next to you, miss? Yeah, but still, John, what, what's it gonna what's it gonna look like? If I have done anything to to convince you that you still have a responsibility, in fact I'd go as far as to call it an obligation. You do. You're Christian. You're Christian. You can even hear the word Christ in that. If we are to be members of the body of Christ, then there needs to be something in us that is representative, that resembles what's in Christ. And Christ ached for people. You and I need to ache for people for the purpose of bringing them in, for the purposes of rescue and salvage, right? And your best, your best tool will be your love, your capacity to care. And I found a little book this week. It's actually the Barnes and Noble Book of the Year. It is entitled, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. 
Now, throughout this series in Epiphany, there are going to be different scenes, um, different images and pictures that I'm going to borrow. These four are on a journey together. These four obviously have some backstory, but you only get snippets and hints of the backstory. Something has happened in the life of the mole, not sure what. We do actually see what happens in the life of the fox. The fox is trying to kill the mole and then gets stuck in a trap. The mole chews through the trap to rescue the fox, and the fox joins this little merry band. The mole, by the way, loves cake. <laughs> loves cake. The answer to all of the best questions in life seems to be uh, cake. In fact, there was a, <laughs> I got an amen out of that. That's good. There is a, a situation here where the mole walks up and says, I made you a cake for your birthday. I said, well, thank you, said the boy. What did you do with it? He says, uh, I seem to have eaten it, said the mole. But it's okay. I made you a second one. Boy said, thank you, where is that? The mole said, the same thing seems to have happened. Uh, they're just walking. They're just walking. They're on a journey together. They're sharing some life and some life experiences. They're asking some important questions and some not so important questions. But they are walking and journeying together. Over a period of time, God takes this very odd grouping of people and makes them into a particular kind of herd. Now, I, that's pastor speak. Charlie Mackesy doesn't say that. I, I've added all of that interpreta interpretation myself, and it's all free of charge. You're okay. But God, over a period of time, takes people who journey together and fashions them into strange, peculiar, and yet powerful little herds. Look, there's at least a percentage of you that saw a face, heard a name or saw a face when I asked that God would provide a name or a face. And for you, now sorting through both your relationship, your current relationship with that person, but also all the things that you have seen and heard about in the name of evangelism, perhaps you're having a hard time, okay, God, I, I sense this is the person you are sort of navigating me toward, but I honestly don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I, I am not sure what the next steps are. Just invite them on your journey. Maybe find a way to journey together. By the way, not every conversation has to be about eternity and life and death and the hardest things in life. What if you were to ask God to help you, we'll start with like, maybe we should start with respect. What if you were to ask God, God, move me, grow me, 
to the point where I have a profound respect for this person. God, move me to a place where I finally can feel it, can feel it. I like this person. God, move me to a place that I might recognize this that I feel for this other person as love because, because I remember when somebody loved me like that. Because I remember when somebody loved me like that. There's one of these at the end. It goes like this. They're all kind of sitting together watching sunset. They're actually all sitting on the horse. Who doesn't seem to mind? (laughs) And the mole asks, what do we do when one of us has a heart that hurts, that aches? The horse, who seems to be the voice of wisdom, says this. We gather around that person. We bathe that person in our relationship in tears, in time, in the hopes of someday again giving that person a chance to wake up happy. That sounds like evangelism to me. To bathe a person, to bathe a circumstance, to bathe a relationship in tears and in time. Neat little verse here. The former things, the same passage in Isaiah 42, the former things have come to pass. Sure enough, God is God. God has in mind that God would reach the entire cosmos all of creation in and through you. And now new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I bring this up now to say this to you. Perhaps it's time for you to allow new things to spring up in your life, in your heart, in your Christian imagination. Maybe this is what's next for you. That God might be able to use you, the best of you, but also the worst of you, to take some light where there is darkness. New things relative to evangelism, new things. No longer should people be intimidated into faith at the end of a spear or a sword or at the end of a really scary movie about the second coming. (laughs) No longer should we believe that shouting at passing cars or passing commuters or tourists will bring about faith because I just don't think it does very often. No longer should we believe that faith as relationship is something that can be packaged and mass-produced. Evangelism, the new kind at least, seems to be a recover of the older, former things. It is, or at least it can be, a journey, your journey, and an invitation to friends or soon-to-be friends to join you. Here, here are my recommendations. In the process, please be honest. Relieve yourself of the obligation to be perfect. Pay attention, because you're all on a journey. So take folks with you. 
cherish friends, new ones and old ones, cherish friendship itself, celebrate the small, and stay nourished. And stay nourished. It is love. It is love that will be the greatest resource you will have to evangelize the other. I've got really good news. That love that you can have for the other does not start with you. It starts with the God who loves you and can love through you. And that is a story we rehearse and retell every week here. Why do we do it? To make sure that God knows that we still love God? That's okay, yeah. Here's why we do it. So that we can be so shaped by this story, by this narrative, that we might someday have a chance to embody this kind of suffering, sacrificial love. I'll say it again. My hope is for us that we eat so much of this bread that we start to become the bread. You are what you eat, you know. The bread, taken, blessed, broken, given. To him, remember? To her, the one that God brought to mind. And so, like I tried to give you some context for the prayer earlier, can I give you some context for the meal now? There's a sense in which you are eating and drawing strength and stamina. There's some sense in which you are remembering this story so that the story can be played out again in the story of your connection with her, with him. <laughs> There's a sense in which you're kind of eating for a couple of you now. So eat today and drink. Be reminded of the love God has for you that it was never meant to stop with you. If you're helping us to set this table, go ahead and come on down. Heavenly Father, continue to impress upon our minds and our imaginations names and faces of people who are in arm's reach, people for whom we can be light as they sit in darkness. Bless these elements. Bless them, God. Use them to strengthen our bodies. Give us the stamina perhaps even the courage to take initial, to take first steps. Use these elements, God, to nourish and fund our imaginations so that we might just get glimpses at least, glimpses of how it is you might work in and through us and through the bond that you would have us build with that other person. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet, exit your pews to the left, and come forward with your hands cupped to receive this gift of grace. Hopefully in the process, you'll, re you'll be reminded that it is grace that you'll need to extend to her, to him, the one that God brought to mind. As you approach a person with bread, that person will snap off a piece and place it into your hands and say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread and then dip it into the cup. When you do, that person standing right there will say to you, this is the blood of Christ shed for you and then take and eat. 
and then find a place to go and pray. And if you would, would you pray for her? Would you pray for him? And yes, pray for yourself that God would find you faithful and ready to build this particular bridge. You may want to take a special trip as you come down because this is sort of our, this is our mission that we've been handed from God. If you need to be reminded that you're a part of a people with a mission, that's what this bowl of water is here for, to remind you of the moment of your baptism when you were initiated into this people who will always have a mission. And by the way, that mission is that person that God brought to mind. If you need to be reminded that you're part of the people who do these sorts of things, that's what this bowl of water is here for. Who is eligible to come and partake in this meal? All of us who recognize our need for grace are eligible and welcome. If you recognize your need for grace, nothing else matters. You might want to find a place to pray. If you come to pray at one of these side padded altars, then somebody will come and pray a prayer for healing for you there. Any kind of healing you can, any kind of need you can bring with you. It might be physical, mental, emotional, relational. If you need that prayer for healing, someone will meet you there and anoint you with oil representative, the sticky, clingy presence of God. If you come to one of these mourner's benches, these kneeling benches up here, we won't assume anything, but at some point we will touch you on the back to let you know that you are not alone because you're not. And you might want to just circle right back around and pray where you're currently seated. If that's the case, that's great. But do continue to pray for him, for her, for yourself. That God would make you into a strange kind of herd. (laughs) One that actually and literally cares for one another. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time, including today, every time you eat of this bread, remember, remember me. That part is key. Remember. Later on, he took the cup and he held it up before them and said, this is the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, remember, remember me. All across the sanctuary, if you would, stand to your feet. Exit your pews to the left and come forward to receive these gifts of God meant to resource and nourish the people of God.